welcome to this episode of the Always Already Podcast. This is John McMahon. So sadly, we lost uh, in the interweb somewhere the introduction to this show. But what you're going to hear in a second is myself and me and our special guest host for this episode is Cody Campbell, who's a doctoral student at the Grad Center in Political Science and American Studies uh, with BNI. We are also joined by his adorable daughter, Sophia, who makes a few appearances of her own in the episode, too. And we are in this episode going to be discussing Genevieve Lloyd's Man of Reason. There is going to be the rest of our interview with Carol Gould. And finally, we answer some advice questions. So in just a second, you're going to hear an introduction, a bit of a summary about Genevieve Lloyd's Man of Reason. And then after that, coming back, it'll be myself, B, and Cody Campbell. So in this episode, we are talking about Genevieve Lloyd's The Man of Reason, Male and Female in Western Philosophy. So in the overall picture of the book, Lloyd's trying to detail the maleness of reason and the concepts and principles and operations and symbols of Western philosophy. She argues that this maleness is deeply embedded in the philosophical ideas of Western philosophy and that it ends up being constitutive of our ways of thinking about reason, about ourselves, about philosophy, about ourselves as thinking beings, and ourselves as gendered people. And reason comes to imbue in Western philosophy and history how we understand what it means to be a good person or to have a good character, and the underlying assumptions of that are themselves gendered. She writes in the, at the end of the introduction, the maleness of the man of reason, I will try to show, is no superficial linguistic bias. It lies deep in our philosophical tradition. Gender, after all, is one of the things from which truly rational thought is supposed to prescind. The aspiration to a reason common to all, transcending the contingent historical circumstances which differentiate minds from one another, lies at the very heart of our philosophical heritage. Our trust in reason that has no sex has, I will argue, been largely self-deceiving. So in the first chapter, she starts to trace a kind of general antithesis in Western philosophy between, on the one hand, femaleness associated with nature and passivity, and maleness associated with culture, rationality, and activity. Reason and culture, thus, are set up as transcending and transforming nature, and consequently the, feminism, the feminine is what is left behind, transcended, or dominated. She gives us a brief account of Pythagoras, Plato, and Aristotle, and for each of those, Lloyd excavates the gendered assumptions, the concepts, the ideas, and the methods at play in each of their theories. The chapter then turns to examine Francis Bacon, the developer or supporter of the modern scientific method, and someone who's often called the father of empiricism, and father is quite appropriate here. Lloyd argues that for Bacon, knowledge is the domination of nature, and that the mind's task in knowledge is the control of nature and thus knowledge becomes a kind of power. The material world is understood to be devoid of mind. Bacon also uses blatant sexual metaphors to express his idea of scientific knowledge as the control of nature. So, for him, nature is knowable, nature must be dominated, and it is rendered as explicitly female. Being a good Baconian scientist, then, means having the right male attitude to feminine nature. Thus, Bacon gives male content to being a good knower and a good thinker. The third chapter, Reason is Attainment, mostly focuses on Rene Descartes. For 
Lloyd, maleness and reason in the 17th century both become achievements need to be attained through breaking from the feminine, and Descartes is kind of the paradigmatic example of this. Descartes transforms the classical relationship between reason and method. For the Socratics or for Aristotelians, reason is incorporated into method, while for Descartes, method is a way of reasoning. It becomes an ordered mode of abstract thinking carried out by the natural operations of disembodied mind. Descartes gets his unity of method from the split he makes between mind and body, and this dualism is what he's ultimately most famous for. Science and reason for Descartes are pure mind in opposition to the body and its material corporeal habits. The right order of ideas is associated with private abstract thought. Now Descartes' intention, Lloyd argues, was to make knowledge more accessible, but the effect of what he does, especially given the primacy of the split between mind and body, and given the way that Descartes' philosophy mingles with existing associations, is that it polarizes the already existing inscriptions about gender and reason. So everything that is non-rational is associated with the body, which is then associated with women or the feminine, while the pure, disembodied, rational thinking mind is associated with men. Mind and reason become, in Descartes' philosophy, highly restricted activities that require the transcendence of sensuousness, according to Lloyd, and thus all these existing contra contrasts that Lloyd's drawing become further polarized. So Descartes creates what Lloyd calls a sexual division of mental labor. As Lloyd writes on page 50, we owe to Descartes an influential and pervasive theory of mind, which provides support for a powerful version of the sexual division of mental labor. Women have been assigned responsibility for that realm of the sensuous, which the Cartesian man of reason must transcend if he is to have true knowledge of things. There's also a short section in this chapter on David Hume, and very briefly Lloyd argues that even in Hume's, Hume's term, two passions and sensations that the crucial philosophical methods and categories remain gendered for him, that he actually kind of instantiates a split between the public and the private realm that has a certain gendered component to it. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, bros, where do we want to start? It's pretty good, dude. <sighs> I'm totally into this, man. Um, I think that we should start with a question related to, I think, um, hopefully on the tip of everyone's tongue, which is, what does Genevieve Lloyd mean by thinking about reason in or through a gendered lens? And maybe more generally, um, thinking about what the central project of Lloyd's work is. Um, we have male and female in Western philosophy, but we also have this uh, kind of preoccupation with certain thinkers within the canon. Right. Um, so maybe it's a dual question. Why consider um, or how to consider reason through a gendered lens? And why is reason taken up, you know, specifically by certain kinds of readings of these men in philosophy? So, Right. Well, I mean, it's in part just the, I think, pretty simple and at this point, at least in certain circles, uh, well-accepted claim that reason, which is presented as genderless or sexless, has actually been gendered in some ways from the beginning, right? That's one of the basic claims. And what I think she illustrates pretty clearly right in the beginning that it'd be, it's almost absurd to, I think, disagree with that claim since it is literally in those terms that reason is so often um, framed from the pre-Socratics to Plato and Aristotle and beyond, which is where she begins. The metaphors and the language and the tropes that she uses or that they use illustrates really well that whether they like it or not, against their best intentions, as Genevieve Lloyd said a couple times, it, that's the effect, that's the, it's what happens. So here's the devil's advocate question, but isn't objective reason or objectivity in general 
value-free or neutral, as well as ungendered and sex-less. I mean, how can, you, how can you argue that, especially from a scientific standpoint, that a scientist, say, which is Lloyd's work, it's the discipline, the philosophy of science in general, um, how can you say that science has a gendered outlook or that knowledge through an objective lens still maintains, you know, a level of gendered thinking? He's really interested in playing devil's advocate. Uh, well, I already have an answer. Philosophy, right? <laughs> well, I, I want to make sure that uh, we set up a straw man so that we can just tear it down. Right? Okay. So you I'm, seem like you really want to do that. So you can answer your okay. own question. Well, I'm okay with that. I mean, how, I second that. Okay. So my take on Lloyd's work is, you know, in many instances, is a is a partial project because I think as Cody and and John and I were talking about before the show. Um, there's a lot here that lays a framework for how to think about knowledge acquisition as how to be thinkers and knowers um, and to use the standpoint of gender and sex as a means of understanding it um, and to reject notions of objectivity as purely neutral free or neutral or value neutral I should say neutral free would be the accepted point of view, sorry. No, they are neutral. Free. They uh, are yeah, of course, free of uh, yeah, free of neutrality, <laughs> indeed. Um, but to think about scientific inquiry through the lens that people have cognitive investments that sometimes they're not aware of, and that perhaps the way that we can think about it is that in her readings from Hegel to Descartes to Plato um, are looking at very specifically how um, the ways in which we read, uh, you know, the universal subject, as it were, of reason, um, were written by individuals who had the privilege of maintaining those norm settings. But so, so that's my fight against the devil's sure. advocate question, which is setting the norms through a gendered language, setting the norms through the lens of, I should say, through the lens of having the privilege as a man, mostly white and propertied throughout history, has given a kind of so-called genderless objectivity when in fact it's entirely rooted within that standpoint. Well, I think the critique is even deeper than that, or we can make an even stronger response to the hypothetical devil's advocate question that you posed in the sense that it's, you know, it's important that, you know, these were mostly rich, white, well-to-do, cis, made probably straight, except for maybe some of the Greeks' men. Mm -hmm. um, that matters, but it's more than just like, okay, well, if that was all we were going to say, we could just perhaps have a project where we say, all right, let's take these concepts and move them to a different context where we're thinking about it with maybe a little bit of self-reflexivity or whatever, and then the, con but the concepts themselves are fine. It's just a matter of who is writing them. Right? But her point is that it's actually the concepts themselves and the way those concepts travel and get built upon and get re-articulated later on so that it's not just, well, we can move these concepts into a different context and they're fine, but we actually need to rethink and reevaluate and redo the concepts because though they themselves are tainted. So since I'm the guest, maybe I'll also play a little bit of devil's advocate. Well, you're also the dirty Cartesian that we invited on. Yeah, exactly. I'm not a Cartesian. Um, though I do have a huge soft spot in my heart for Descartes. Actually, for all of the thinkers in this book, really. Um, maybe except for Hume. He's not so exciting to read all the time. <laughs> I love Hegel. Uh, <laughs> but I hate him simultaneously. Sure. So, it's a dialectic way of thinking. So as the devil's advocate, I certainly agree with both of the things that John and B just said. I wonder if we can interrogate the text as Lloyd uh, frames it, though. And I, I wonder if 
often she reinscribes some of the various things that she wants to critique through um, what I think is not maybe the best methodology to approach these texts in this form, but also her collapsing of form and content in ways that I think really have the effect of reinscribing the very same notion of reason that she's trying to critique. And a good example of this is the uh, at the end of chapter one, which is talking about Francis Bacon. Sure. So she's painfully aware of, I think, my critique. She just, I don't know if she, why she wouldn't take it any further. But in the last two sentences of the second to last paragraph, she says, so she's basically talking about Francis Bacon and the way that his metaphors are gendered and sexualized. And uh -huh. as she illustrates, they're very gendered and very sexualized. Very explicit about it. Ex I mean, More he does so it than probably anyone else that she writes out in the book, except for maybe Hegel or, or Rousseau. But, all right. Absolutely. <laughs> so she says that uh, the metaphors do not merely express conceptual points about the relations between knowledge and its objects. They give a male content to what it is to be a good knower. So... I mean, she claims here that metaphors, the form of the argument itself, is right. what gives content to this man of reason. Mm -hmm. um, and she continually, by not, I think, um, investigating why that is, how that happens, what that does, she ends up, in a way, utilizing reason in the same way that she's trying to critique. She's grabbing onto content, and she's just re... And she's using that content against itself, in a way, but without questioning the way that that content can only be given in a certain way. That content could not, I don't think, be given in a different way. I think Sophia disagrees with you. <laughs> yeah, my baby point. is crying really right now. I might have to pick her. Okay, so Sophia's here, and she's calmly starting to agree with her dad, I think. Um, <laughs> to, I, I guess to give another example of what I'm talking about with metaphor and the content of, of you know, the man of reason or the distinction between form and content is that if we look at other more explicit uh, philosophical examples of Plato's The Republic, or Plato in general, which I don't think she also interrogates in a very interesting way. Um, he, he wrote dialogues, uh, fictions, fictitional, fictitious characters. Uh, he, famous, you know, he famously asked Socrates kick out the poets because of their you know, use of representation, sure. yet he is so artistic himself. Um, Nietzsche's aphorisms were necessary for the content, right? I mean, there's I think that you can't have Nietzsche's argument outside of those aphorisms. Mm -hmm. I think they're necessarily contingent upon each other. So I think that the way that through the uh, famous melting wax candle on Descartes or the gendered and sexualized metaphors of Bacon, the arguments that they're making are so tied to the form that they're making them that by, I don't know, I just think that that is such an important thing to interrogate because without doing that, I think she kind of slips into accidentally, unintentionally reinscribing <clears throat> some of the same problems she's trying to critique. I guess, I mean, there are two things I think there, at least. Um, and one of them is that I think you're right that she's not particularly interested in thinking about <clears throat> the form of the arguments themselves. All right, that's fine. I agree with that. But I would disagree perhaps with some of the rest of that, that I actually think she's making the argument, perhaps not always explicitly, but that she's critiquing the form of philosophy, the content of philosophy, and the multiple articulations of the relationship between the form and content of philosophy in a way that actually ends up undoing some of those distinctions. Um, and even though she's, you know, perhaps I think somewhat overly generous to someone like Aristotle in her 
um, kind of brief discussion of him and his hylomorphism in the first chapter, I actually think that she is making the argument, again, maybe not explicitly, and she does account for this in the preface to the second edition, right? She even says that, you know, she wish, she wishes she had thought more in the book itself about, you know, metaphor and its operation in philosophy itself. But I do really think that even in, you know, not accounting for that particular kind of reflection on her part, that she's actually doing a lot to collapse these distinctions or these concepts or these modes of analyzing and thinking about and doing philosophy. Um, I wonder if you could give an example of that, because I because I don't think I at least in the chapters that we read. So full disclosure, I have not read the full book. I did read just the chapters that yeah. we're supposed to, first couple Absolutely. chapters. So I'm not quite sure I saw that in those first couple chapters. Or maybe I'm just not. I, I might not be um, following what you mean. Well, right. I, I think I know she is something. Well, no, I, I think that it, to a certain extent, I'm not exactly sure that it fits entirely within the project that I think before we were having this conversation about how uh, much of the project is just canonical reading of many of these thinkers. And I think to an extent, I might agree with Cody on the idea that she may in doing so be adopting the very thing that she wants to avoid. But I think most thinkers have a tendency to to fall into that problem. I want to avoid dichotomy and dualisms, but yet people seemingly fall back into the safe space of dichotomy and dualisms. And here we have the, the problem of you know gendered metaphor, but yet she's still falling back into the reification of form and content, which she says that she wants to try and avoid. I don't know if it's necessarily the point that she's, she's making this as part of the project, one, but two, I'm trying to think more along the lines of, well, um, and maybe even less so, is that it's it's less about gendered metaphor here for Lloyd. I think the implicit aspect is the methodological uh, commitments and investments that these thinkers are making have a particularly privileged male perspective and must at least originate genetically from that, or ge genealogically, not genetically. Uh, sorry, sorry, I, I, I was thinking about the genetic fallacy, and so I, I, I misused the two terms. Uh, a genealogical linkage between... Um, males as, as having historical privilege in society as being setters, as it were, of norms, and using the methodological inquiry or apparatus throughout time as a means of kind of making unintelligible certain kinds of otherwise feminine ways of thinking about things. So passion, emotion. We must, you know, avoid passion and emotion, according to Plato. We must avoid these kinds of things in order to make so-called objective statements about the world, i.e. Bacon, um, and that metaphor becomes a ma uh, just a means to a certain degree of an end um, to ensure that objective ways of, of understanding the world are met. But those ways are never purely objective. They always take into account, at least this is the implicit reading I'm getting from Lloyd, and maybe it's tainted by other readings that either I'm currently doing or I was doing alongside of Lloyd, um, is that... <clears throat> the the overall project that Lloyd's attempting here is not, here's the explicit ways that things are sexed and gendered, but here are the implicit ways that methodology are in fact taking up an otherwise an overlooked gendered way of thinking about the world. Or at least both of those projects. Well, yeah, I think that, but it's not just the project of making explicit the metaphor of gendered and sexed life. Right? Yes. And so, you know, so I don't know, I don't want to tarry too long on, on, the, on the overt... Um, sexed, gendered metaphor. 
um, but rather try and see, you know, the implicit qualities of it, and does she commit the same errors there? You know, so in the explicit um, aspects, I think that Cody's right. Right, the explicit aspects, she does take on this collapse. Uh, this, she does take on reifies the dichotomy here for Mormon content. The implicit aspects, I'm wondering, is that is she committing the same mistakes? Is she is she falling it back into like sort of safe waters, as it were? Even if she does, we think, end up reifying form and content, or even if we think she is um, reinscribing some of that, what she, that what she is critiquing, I actually think that's to some extent an effective use of what of her project. Or effective or affective? Okay. Um, as always, <laughs> I think it should be taken for granted. Whenever I say effective, it always it should have a slash in it. Okay, yeah, yeah. always. Although my advisor got mad when I did that in my <laughs> dissertation <laughs> chapter. Um, so I think that let me think how to articulate. Well, I'll, I'll articulate through a particular example that I will hopefully get back to the, this broader point, right? But so when she's talking about Pythagoras and then Plato and then Aristotle, right? She wants to say critique the way that they use the form content distinction, right? Because it ends up being that um, form ends up being active and determinant and male, female ends up being passionate, passive, indeterminate, and so on, nature, so on and so forth. You mean the form matter, not the form content distinction. That's what I. That's yeah. what I meant. Um, right, but that that but that then that gives over into a particular relationship between even form and content itself, which she's more interested in thinking about in terms of Plato. Right, so she's able to think about, particularly in terms of Plato, the way that form and content, in relation to form and matter, are particularly working for a particular male end. Right, then in that later in that same chapter, she talks about how Bacon, and even though Bacon is deviating and by to some extent collapsing form and content and form and matter into one another, there's still a certain maleness there and a maleness in the way that Bacon's doing it. So I think that in, in the way that she's using these concepts in order to destroy or deconstruct these very concepts, that I think that ends up preventing her from, preventing us from being able to say, well, these ideas or these uh, ways of thinking or these categories or whatever are reified because it's in her very use and articulation of them that they get deconstructed. So, I mean, plainly then, sorry, Cody. I, uh, oh, no, it's okay. I uh, just wanted to follow up with that, with, okay. with, a, with a question uh, that I've been thinking. So, um, and this has, th this would not be a critique of Lloyd sure. because as a philosopher as well, I mean, I'm also interested in doing the same type of work. But I think a question that's interesting to ask is, oh, I'm sorry, that's interesting to ask is the privileging of philosophical discourse. So when we're thinking of these metaphors and the, the gendered reason, and we think about specifically in times of Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle, they're working in and against a whole tradition of myths and literatures that precede them that used the same things. So it's as if they were informed by other cultural discourses to begin with. Um, and I'm just curious the degree to which we want to privilege philosophical, or if we would want to privilege philosophical discourse as that which is um, so much more, uh, has so much more power to actually reinscribe or to reinforce or to, or to create these differences and where it's not a narrative or representational form in myth, religion, literature, poetry. Uh, I mean, and specifically still thinking of the Greeks and Romans. Yeah, I think that, um, and that's just been a perennial issue, right? Yeah. I mean, even to 2014, we still deal with a dichotomy between scientific thought providing um, the methodological means to truth 
and Absolutely. that and that myth and religion literature etc um, have been isolated off as sort of mere sort of plays on just plays on words and and fantasy um, and so I think that um, you know you're right in that sense but I also think that what Plato and Socrates and others were doing in the way that Lloyd's thinking about it is they were also in direct con you know conflict with the sophists of the time these heightened skeptics who were you know in really the forebears of modern lawyers and scientists for that matter um, as you know as having to what extent can we take radical um, skepticism um, and to what extent can we take these philosophical inquiries at face value um, to what extent can we sort of throw them out um, but for Lloyd's reasoning uh, to what extent can we only think about them through the fact that only men in general were having these conversations? But I, I, you keep using that kind of formulation, but it's more than that. It's not just that only men were having these conversations, but the concepts themselves become gendered. Well, yeah, that's the Louis point. Is that bring up the fact at all that only men were having the conversation? I mean, that's absolutely important. I agree, but I think what John is pointing out, which is really important, that it's not the people having the convert, not just the people having the conversations. It's the way they frame the conversations and the concepts they use. I that actually become lived realities. I think that that's right, but the lived experiences of men having conversations regarding philosophy, object, uh, objective thought, value, neutrality, mm -hmm. constitutes the very nature of the ways in which it becomes gendered. Sure. So I think it's the lived qualities of that negotiation, of these negotiations historically, that then become part and parcel of the fact that it becomes gendered. So I think that Lloyd is just, she's making the implicit you know, turn of saying, yes, these are sexed individuals having conversations that set the norms of, of dialogue throughout the centuries, um, but that these become the means of, of, of having a gendered lens through which we're looking at the, the so-called natural world. I wanted to sort of just make one, you know, point is that it follows up on um, and follows through upon the, the notion that somehow nature being feminine is passive and thus is open to methodological inquiry i.e. men owning controlling and having and taking possession possession of that nature um, Baconian scientific method and the like um, all take up this kind of implicitly gendered claim nature is passive and we can enter into you know forgive these kind of sexualized metaphors but it's there um, but we can enter into nature understand it and control it manipulate yep. it for our own means mm -hmm. and so there's a political investment in Lloyd's work too um, but the political investment is the ways in which women have been subverted and, and subjugated not just through you know actual coercive means as in men taking control of women but that relationship becomes reified within philosophical and scientific discourse even if they're not totally aware of it even if these people think that they are the enlightened ones of that society another metaphor another metaphor the enlightened <laughs> ones quote enlightened ones of that society they take up this claim of control and the nature of that control and so um, so so-called nature of that control um, and I think that, that you know uh, Lloyd's book, however simple in its, and, and lucid, I should say, more less than simple, but lucid its prose and the way that it deconstructs certain kinds of metaphors, is wrought with, um, you know, I think some deep-seated sexual politics that don't really come out as clearly as, I think, some of her, some of later analysis of her work. Yeah, I maybe want to get into Maybe that. I'm wrong or no, right. I, I but think you're right, but I maybe want to hold off on that for Sorry, yeah. I'm about what we do with it. Because um, I'm actually not sure we 
to actually. I know that was my Cody's that was my detraction. Wise. My detraction. Um, yeah. So. I think that what Lloyd is doing in response to Cody's specific point about whether she's kind of overly privileging the philosophical or uh, reifying a particular set of canonical thinkers, if I understand your critique right, Cody, is that or a possible critique? Yeah, yeah. So I think that what she's doing is she's being like, all right, well, who won historically for us in the West in the late 20th century? This book's 1984. Um, and you know, as much as maybe subtly the sophists may have some influence in certain aspects of society, as B points out, um, Socrates or Plato's Socrates won, Aristotle won, Descartes won. Yes, Descartes caught up in a whole, um, you know, network of people who are disagreeing with him and um, scientific and philosophical and theological debates and discussions in a particular historical context. But I think what Lloyd is doing is addressing our reception of these people today. And our reception of them today is that there is Descartes, right? And Descartes has won. And it doesn't matter what Descartes was arguing about with Pufendorf or with Hobbes or um, the particular scientific entanglements that he gets involved in um, with, you know, the experimentalists in England or whatever. Um, that she wants us to think about the way the concepts as they have been transmitted down to us and in the particular canon um, that we have, that it's those people and that canon that are, becomes the object of critique. So I guess I'll make the same point um, that I did earlier, that I think in the very way she deploys canonicity, she upsets canonicity. So I, a word? I think that's really... I um, just made it a word. <laughs> I think it's I think probably you said Rick uses that word in the <laughs> intro to uh, Epistemology of the Cloud. Okay, so I'll, I'll give it to you. Yes. Okay. Um, so I think that's right on, and I think that is absolutely what she's trying to do. Uh, I just, um, I guess the way that I was thinking about it was I'm, I'm wondering how effective that was insofar as the canon is really left, I mean, literally intact still. Uh, another gendered metaphor there. Yeah. Sorry for that one. Um, <laughs> but so I think of other ways to approach this th this type of analysis. A, a genealogical analysis, I think, would be much more effective. And that might just be my own political biases, sort of tends towards a Nietzschean or Foucauldian way of approaching historical texts by finding, or Benjaminian as well, of, of finding uh, the gaps that really illustrate why we have constructed this canonical history, and I, I, I'm just I'm interested in the way that that, or it, interested in the way that by not doing that, how can <clears throat> how is she actually upsetting the canon? I think so. I'll, I'll respond to that through historicizing my own for Elizabeth Lloyd, as I understand it, is that Genevieve Lloyd, uh, uh, Elizabeth Lloyd, uh, Genevieve Lloyd. Sorry, Genevieve. Uh, yeah, we know each <laughs> other so well. Um, that. Feminist epistemologies during the 80s and the 90s was just coming into its own and was just entering the field um, as a means in philosophical inquiry of being taken seriously, if we can even say that. I mean, even in the 90s, um, the American Philosoph you know, Philosophical Association didn't uh, take seriously the claims that a lot of feminist epistemologists... And arguably still doesn't. And still doesn't, um, that feminist epistemolog well, epistemologists were making. And so what Lloyd was attempting to do in this work is, I think, you know, maybe, you know, I don't want to say this to give a kind of, to shed a negative light on it, 
but was playing it safe for several reasons. One is that this book was revolutionary on many counts, but two, this book wasn't going to take on a project that was going to be ultimately refuted by the very, you know, philosophical schools that she was trying to enter into, whether it be continental or analytic, because she's taking on both yeah. right by the, you know, the horns, as it were. Um, I can see you about ready to go to a different gender metaphor. I know, yeah, exactly. So I'm just like, by the horns. Um, and so, I mean, it's in that sense that I think if we think of, if we think about it, the historical time in which she's writing this book, she's not going to invest a project with too much of a, you know, political stance or uh, insinuate, if she can insinuate all she wants, but make explicit the kinds of things, that, the genealogical things that you want to see happen, which in fact I think, you know, again, and we'll get into this later, I think that Lloyd's book is setting the framework for those very kinds of investigations which make it so absolutely important, such a canonical work, canonicity speaking, right? <laughs> um, so uh, such a canonical work in this field is saying, but it's not just philosophy, right? Um, because I think that the Western world, um, as it were, uh, the United States, and I think that we can take Cosmos um, to be uh, an example of this, we no longer think of science as philosophy. We think of science as its own discipline. We think of it as completely separate, even if we don't think about the history of science as coming from a philosophical school. Um, we don't think about it anymore as being associated with philosophy, which is sad. You know, even with, like, you know, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, making claims that, in fact, it is not a part of the philosophical trend, that philosophy actually detracts. So I think that Lloyd's work is a, is a really great and perennial book of, of reminding us that science and philosophy are always interconnected, that it's also through social institutions that it's connected, and that these social institutions are invariably gendered and sexed. I would even go further than what Bia said, in that not only does <clears throat> Lloyd's book, in its particular historical content, revolutionary for the reasons that she gives us, but I think it's revolutionary in that the canon that exists, if we get to say, all right, you know the Western philosophical canon pretty well, you give the book, this book to someone who knows the philosophical canon pretty well, the canon's no longer the same, and it doesn't have the same stability or hegemony or a kind of discursive um, or affective privilege. sort of privilege, exactly, that it does before this book and after this book. So that's why, I, that's why I make the argument that it's actually at least destabilizing of the canon and that it's, and we, and it's actually improper of us to say that because she... Because she constructs or re-articulates a certain very traditional canon, that that's exclusive of that canon being destabilized. And I actually think that the articulation of the canon and the way she articulates it is itself a way to destabilize the canon, actually. I buy that. Both of those seem like the devil's advocate has been convinced. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, solidarity has been taken in a very um, narrow way to apply to within nation states or within small groups. 
in which people feel solidarity just with the members of the group. So it's almost like a case of a gang is a paradigmatic case of solidarity. Um, but of course, there's national solidarity too related to notions of fraternity. Oh, I'm using scare quotes. Yes, scare quotes indeed. The audience <laughs> can't see the scare quotes. Um, sorority. Well, anyway. Um, so those are important notions, but I think um, increasingly where you have transnational social movements and you have also humanitarian movements that, uh, that are concerned with people at a distance, there's this newer notion. We need a newer notion of solidarity because there is solidarity within those movements, solidarity also with the people that they're trying to, to help, people who are suffering from oppression or injustice. So I develop a normative conception of solidarity for transnational contexts. And I do think we, that based on those kinds of cases of social movements aiming at justice or aiming even at uh, eliminating suffering, something like that, I think it's, um, empathy plays a role because one has to really understand the perspective and the situation of the other but not just as a cognitive perspective. It's an, a notion of feeling with, of yeah. Einfühlung, of feeling into and feeling with the other. Um, and I think that's an important element in addition to any kind of rational respect for the human rights. So I try to synthesize empathy within this conception and talk about mutual aid, to some degree using a Marxist idea of labor solidarity as one model, but extending it much more broadly to these social movements where um, where you stand with the others and they have to take the lead. So if African women are trying to eliminate female genital cutting, the question is what is the role of outsiders? And I think uh, they the role is to show some deference to, to the um, people who are most concerned and this applies also for humanitarian aid or you know, Haiti earthquake or um, cases of those sorts, um, the tsunami. <clears throat> and I take those as paradigmatic and develop a conception of, solid then I, of solidarity. And then I address the challenges to this view, like do you really expect everyone globally to uh, stand in solidarity with everybody else or feel solidarity with everyone? I mean, that's like an exhausting thought, empathy with everyone. And so I, I think I solved that problem in the book. Okay. Well, People even will if have it is to read it. I'm not going to tell them the whole book. That's, well, because I mean, I'm, I wanted to ask the question is that I think that, um, I mean, I enjoyed your reference to Marx in there because I think too often that models of solidarity not only get, you know, reduced to the way you think about it, in, you know, in terms of, well, it's just this one particular group and that's all you can feel solidarity mm -hmm. with. Right. But there are also, you know, whether it's a reductionist reading of Marx on class consciousness or something, that can turn solidarity into something that's incredibly mechanistic. Yeah. And I think I share your conviction that I think there's more in Marx about something like dealing with or something that's not just cognitive or a, you know, a residue of one's class location, but there right. is something right. more embodied or material or empathetic to solidarity. I should say also that I draw on feminist theory here in of that course. section of the book a lot because I think feminist theory, uh, like even care ethics like Joan Tronto's work or Virginia Howe has a lot to contribute, although I prefer the notion of solidarity as a more uh, political notion to that of care. But I do uh, consider those uh, in those middle sections. I think that's um, a very important direction 
Uh, it seems like your book is also in, in link with uh, new feminist epistemologies, for instance, testimonial justice and epistemic justice, because there's a lot going on here, more than purely affect or empathy. There's also epistemic practices of openness to one to one's other suffering. And right, right, right. So my conception is, is really very inclusive, um, and I'm subsequent to the book also I'm going on to develop the particular relation of empathy and reason mm -hmm. in an inclusive way. And I think that's a very plausible thing to expect. Uh, it's not an impossibility uh, for people to um, have particular relations and, and be in particular groups. But, but these groups have to be inclusive. They have to be open to others to join in, especially, and some social movements really exemplify that, where they are um, perceived themselves in sort of quasi-democratic ways, but they're also open to joining with other groups. Uh, so this is largely in civil society associations cases, but it can be extended much more broadly. So um, actually my idea is that um, although we can't feel empathy with everyone, we can expect that people could develop through better education. <laughs> we depend a lot on that. Um, a disposition to empathy in which they are open to feeling empathy with whenever there is suffering or questions of injustice. Right. Or in the very least, uh, if it's not you know, empathy, and I totally agree that empathy um, should and I hope is a part of that dialogue, uh, allow for the uh, kind of the testimonial plausibility of this person talking about their suffering, right? Um, and to give that credibility, right? Um, and changing the social imaginary in such a way as to allow for that kind of intelligibility of suffering. So, yeah, that sounds good. I think yeah. I'll include that in yeah. my <laughs> next book and give you credit. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe you could talk a little about the way that feminist care ethics does work into your conception of solidarity and then secondarily what you're doing to kind of draw a somewhat distinction between it sounds like what you're the way you're talking about solidarity and what you've learned but want to do something different from from feminist care ethics right well um, although there are efforts to apply care ethics to politics mm -hmm. you know um, and to, to groups, I, it hasn't been done very much. And I think when you're talking about groups, it makes more sense in political context. It, it, um, it makes more sense to look at the ways that some of the features of care, of care um, are included within these more political contexts. So that solidarity is um, a better concept in that sense. Um, I also have reservations about care ethics um, just to the degree that it um, emphasizes, well, especially versions of it that very much take as paradigmatic, you know, mothering per mm -hmm. se, which should be parenting, of course, and often is taken to be parenting. As a model, I'm, I'm wary of any of these efforts to draw our whole politics from a personal, interpersonal interaction kind of case, whether it be mothering or friendship or any of the other positive dimensions, uh, not always positive, <laughs> uh, dimensions of everyday life. So I think they ha it has a role, but I think we need to confront um, the institutional context also. Um, I do, by the way, argue for uh, or consider a right to care 
and, and I consider whether care is itself protected in the human rights documents and so forth. My, and you think that's something that your you know, social ontology or the way you're conceptualizing of human rights, that opens up the possibility for something? Oh, like yes, that? because for, in my view, the social and economic rights are as important as the civil and political rights and um, really need to be taken as more than just the so-called manifesto rights or a nice idea for others. Right. You know, they need to be applied. Uh, yeah. Um, but so, in philosophically, though, also, care ethics tends to be extremely particularistic. And my view attempts to have elements that are both particular and universalist. Um, and it's, um, I think, a strength of the view that it develops this notion of what I've called over the years concrete universality, or universality that um, takes seriously the differences between people. From the very beginning, I've, I've argued for the importance of difference, but not in the sense of radical difference, such that it's unbridgeable necessarily, or we can't understand others at all, or anything like that, or that all we can do is be, you know, accept all differences and be uncritical. So, um, yeah, I do think there is a universalist element, but it's always differentiated that people are all self-transformative, but that's to say that they are distinctive. They change themselves through time. So difference is part of what we need to recognize when we recognize others' equality, that they're equal in their differences. And care ethics tends to be anti-universalist uh, for the most part, and I'm not. But on the other hand, I'm against abstract universals where all you can say about people is they're all rational choosers or something. Mm -hmm. That doesn't capture their difference or their relationships to each other. So it seems to be deprivatizing care in that in such a way? Oh, dear. <laughs> you have a bunch of hard questions. I know. <laughs> I, do. I don't know. That. Yeah, private you didn't get is to that one. <laughs> private and public is very difficult. Um, it's, it's not just care. It's okay. more solidarity yeah. than but just care. But in some care. ways it seems like solidarity or even the way you're conceptualizing of democracy is trying to work across or through, you know, what traditionally gets understood as the public and the private. Yes, yeah. it, it does pull them together, but it doesn't necessarily um, obliterate the importance of, you know, of the privacy of individuals in the sense of their being able to think for themselves and so forth. I think that there is a domain of intimacy that we want to preserve mm -hmm. and that, that that doesn't yeah. mean it should be unpoliced. I mean, no, that's the wrong way of putting it. That doesn't mean that there should be... Um, violence permitted or anything like that, you know, within private spheres. But there's some role for um, keeping close relationships uh, and our own thinking out of, certainly out of government interference. Mm -hmm. So another, I did discuss this surveillance issue, you know, in connection with one other thing that we really didn't talk about yet, which I think is interesting, is the sort of networking approach to... Um, to social life, but also to power, and taking seriously um, the new developments of people being tied to others at a distance through the, through the internet, but also in other ways, and uh, trying to develop a new networking notion where we're not just looking at, at separate communities, so that's part of the interactive idea, but we're looking at them as overlapping. Mm -hmm and what's involved when communities over, overlap and can presumably 
share some interests and not necessarily all interests and what kind of attitude people should have to these other communities because I'm not too thrilled with, with nationalism and resurgent nationalism in Europe and even some dangers here. We sure. see nativism recently in the U.S., mm -hmm. which is pretty in scary. to the migrant children. To him, yeah, yeah, very recently. It's really scary. And uh, that's not inclusive. No. <laughs> it's not only not inclusive vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, people here, but it certainly doesn't address the need to relate to others at a distance. Mm -hmm. now, to what extent do you think that, whether it's Occupy Wall Street, whether it's the Arab Spring, these kinds of, um, you know, quote-unquote real-world events and movements have informed this particular work of yours? Yeah. It's, it's there, it seems. Very yeah, strongly. very much. I mean, I think that as a theorist, I'm really looking to these developments, these actual developments, and trying to articulate what it, what it, what are they after, how do they relate to these values and core norms, and trying to make it clear, you know, what's involved so that it would be a model for future um, further development of them. They aren't always necessarily entirely clear about what their norms are, but I'm just trying to, so my theory emerges out of these practices, even though it may not seem to, it may seem like full grown out of a philosopher's head or something, but it isn't. And, you know, it's, it's based on real, also even institutionally, you know, the fact that human rights are recognized uh, to some degree in, in international law makes, suggests that we should take them seriously. So it does come out of a lot of the movement of the 60s and then, uh, which need a lot of refinement, and as well as Occupy has a big influence. Um, but taken alone, you know, I'm trying to theorize them uh, in a coherent way so that others can act to realize the goals more, more fully. Well, um, I suppose one question I would have, I don't know if this is one of yeah, those complicated yeah, ones, right? Is that what if, uh, you know, for instance, things like uh, Occupy, which didn't have necessarily any expressed goal, so to speak, but rather... Uh, an expression, and maybe this is where you're speaking theorizing it, um, but rather just an expression of, of norms, egalitarian norms in, them, in and for themselves. Um, is that what you're speaking of when you say theorizing what, say, Occupy means to a broader spectrum of, you know, um, of having an institutionalization of human rights? Well, yeah, if we're going to... I want to plug my son's book here. Yeah, do because, it, by all means. <laughs> because um, it's called the It's by Michael Gulbartovsky, and it's called The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement. Um, and he addresses, you know, some of the problems with their lack of demands um, and, you know, questions of whether, in fact, they were democratic enough. They were influenced very much by um, anarchist theory, which I used to be much more sympathetic with, but I really think it has its um, disadvantages because of the incapacity to come to any decisions, among others. So, I mean, the idea is taking some of these strong um, aims that of, of social movements very seriously how can they be put together with the other things that we're aware of and with what we think people are, are capable of and what they need to make it a coherent picture? It's a kind of picture. 
of the various norms as they're related to each other. Because if you just go ahead with, with one norm in mind, it's going to be too one-sided. It's just freedom or just democracy as like a formal process or just solidarity or just or simply justice. You're not going to be able to act correctly. So I think I figured out how they are related to each other. Um, it's just one view. It's it uh, you know it's not necessarily uh, claiming um, any kind of absolute knowledge status. But I think it's a plausible view that enables us to to retain what to emphasize the things that we really want as a pro progressive thinker um, uh, in a way that is consistent and take seriously a lot of the criticisms that have been made of previous theories. Mm -hmm. I mean, it may not seem obvious, but I take very seriously the criticisms of a host of the theorists in, in politics to, to this point. And I've myself made these criticisms. But if one makes a criticism, then the question is, is there an alternative perspective that avoids the criticism? So it's a kind of dialectical methodology that I use. I'm one of the few people to really be an advocate of <laughs> dialectical <laughs> reasoning. Uh, which I think is a very strong one, uh, method of proceeding, um, because it enables us to take seriously what's, what's strong about alternative views uh, without necessarily splitting the difference, but finding a perspective within which the, what's strong about the previous views can be retained in a way that um, enables us to move ahead. So. so wondering if you could speak a little bit about kind of your particular method and position in writing this kind of work? Because, I mean, disciplinarily, you, you know, work across uh, sometimes mm -hmm. artificial or overdrawn divide between political theory and political philosophy. And you're appointed in both the political science and philosophy programs right, here right. at the Graduate Center. So I wonder if you find, in what ways kind of you find that is a challenge or a boundary that works against doing intellectual work or intellectual and political work? and perhaps to what extent being in that position, so you're involved in both of those kinds of sets of debates and discourses, is perhaps also a productive position for you. Well, it certainly has been productive for me in terms of my students. It's wonderful to have students from both political science and philosophy in the same class, because although I think they're really one and the same uh, in terms of political theory, political philosophy, very little difference between them, if any. Maybe just who counts as a big stars, you know, yeah. Rawls on one hand, or Walzer or Wolin on the other, I don't know who you want to mention, but um, yeah, a little bit of difference, but it's hard to see what it is. We're back, and it's time for my Tumblr friend from Canada. My favorite section. All right, B, you have a question to start us off. Yeah, so I've been uh, struggling with developing a kind of robust social life alongside my, you know, maybe less than but perhaps robust academic it's life. robust. <laughs> okay. My robust <laughs> academic life, you know, uh, working on my dissertation proposal, have a defense date. Yay! Uh, and I found it increasingly difficult to juggle the two. 
um, either because of guilt as a result of enjoying myself. I know that one. Um, or even when I'm at home and I'm not being social, I feel guilty about not writing or reading or doing something academic. I know that one too. How in the hell um, are people in academia, specifically in grad school, uh, tenure track or non, um, I'm just wondering how does one strike a nice balance between the two? So I've so had, had a, a strange experience, experience almost on... on so I'm so married and my partner is not in academia. So she, so she doesn't really... Well, I mean, she juggles now with myself, a child in social life, which is a totally different thing. Um, but I've all, my experience has almost been the opposite, where I've had so much social life because of my partner's friends and family that I have not often been able to engage academia as much as I want. So... Um, so that was a non-answer because I, <laughs> I feel like I experienced the same thing you do from the from the other side of it. Like I, I should be engaging in going to more conferences, reading more books, coming to more events. Um, and it seems to be either too much on one end, too much on the other, but never you know a nice. So we need some Aristotelian. Moderation. I need some moderation. You know what? Homeric moderation. How about that? <laughs> Dionysian. Yeah, moderation, moderation in all things, I believe, was, uh, you know, one of Odysseus's um, advice giving. So, Yeah, I like to think about that in sobriety, too. I have to moderate my sobriety. <laughs> and I like the way he thinks. See, I think we just need more Dionysius, more Dionysius and less Apollo. Yeah. I agree. So did we just answer how to be more social with the most academic response? Uh, so more Bacchus and Dionysus, less uh, Logos and Apollo? Basically, go read Nietzsche. <laughs> That's great. Sounds like I'm really going to have a flourishing, flourishing social life. My silence is basically that I have no freaking clue. Yeah. So you uh, listeners out there, if you have some kind of answer to this conundrum, which clearly we have not yet resolved, um, why don't you write us? How does how does one or how do you resolve this work-life balance in academia? If you're a part of academics or even if you're not, how do you strike the balance between the work and the social life? In such a way that doesn't seem to be detrimental to either. I mean, part of it is just finding, like, what your individual mean is, right? <laughs> is attuned I rolled to my eyes and virtues and such. Um, that, I mean, that balance is going to necessarily look differently for everyone, right? Depending on, like, one's mental health situation and their relationship to academia and partner and friends and what your friends do and their lives professionally and socially and all of those sorts of things that, um, you know, some people are going to enjoy. Like, you know, when I went decompression time, I'm not really going to have that decompression time without the guilt, and that's something that I can work on, right? But part of it is also, like, the conditions of academia whether it's the specific pressures of grad school, whether it's, like, the problem of contingent academic labor, all of these sorts of things, right, are very real um, impingements on having a social life, right? So it's not, like, just a matter of us figuring out, like, what the correct balance is. It's also a matter of, like, the conditions and context are really challenging, too. No, you're right. And I think that, you know, John's putting some material reality on the fact that we, as contingent labor within the academic workforce, are oftentimes 
sometimes uh, just completely overwhelmed by the kinds of responsibilities that entail it. Uh, people think that you simply show up and teach for, you know, an hour and 15 minutes two times a week, but it, it extends far beyond that. Um, you know, it goes into grading, it goes into recommendation writing, it goes into departmental issues, it goes into the politics of dealing with students, it goes into, um, you know, even grading while at home, which takes forever depending on how much work, which I assign a lot of writing, you know, you spend a lot of time analyzing that. So, you know, you find yourself at odds when you get a text message from friends saying, hey, do you want to come out? And you realize, no, I need to grade these 40 papers that are five pages long each, right? Right. So, so, yeah, I think yeah, that, I think that you, know, perhaps, you know, perhaps, you know, if, you know, listeners, listeners want to write in, in how does one do that, do that in such a way that perhaps, like, relieves relieve some of the, the guilt, guilt associated? Is it about just sort of making goals for a day and saying, I've accomplished those goals, and now I can go out and not think about all the responsibilities that I still have to do? I mean, one of the things that I think just might... Illustrate how, how, oh my gosh, girl, how, how much this is an actual problem is that I'm here with my baby. The baby, yeah. Work life balance, but it's, you know, it permeates all. But Sophia, I love the fact that she's here. She's a baby. Yeah, so if anyone could actually see this conversation right now, she has a lot to say. She's going to be very opinionated. And I'm happy she's going to be smart. Smart theorist very soon. Yes, she is. <laughs> and doctor. <laughs> and lawyer. I know. You just smiled at that. Um, um, so do we go to the next question? Sure. Yeah. All right. The next question is from Marissa. So thank you for writing us, Marissa. She writes, I'm moving to New York City in a couple weeks, and what I'm most excited about is trying to find philosophy lectures or conferences or talks or getting involved in these types of discussions. I didn't major in philosophy, but would love to surround myself at least a little with philosophical discourse outside of the web, and I imagine NYC is a good place for that. Do you all have any recommendations on good websites or places to find lectures and talks that are related especially to kinds of critical theory subject matter. And then she says some very nice things about the podcast. So thank you for that, Marissa. Oh, thank you. I, well, um, I just want to mention, it's not directly related to critical theory per se, but it does have a lot to do with social theory and praxis within philosophy. Is uh, Professor Jim Jasper offers a um, politics and protest seminar. He's in the sociology department here at the Graduate Center, Central Line. Um, he and a number of others have coordinated, I believe it's a, you know, it's more than just a once a month meeting. I think during the semester it's, uh, it seems to be every other week, uh, at least the way that I've been hearing about it. Um, you know, conversations about what it looks like to engage in protest movements. Um, they invite a variety of thinkers from within social theory as well as social movement fields um, to have conversations about um, these ideas. So, um, you know, one way to look up is actually through the Graduate Center's website, which I think is a hub of a, of a great many number of, um, of really interesting um, events. Um, look into events at the Graduate Center website. And, um, and certainly go to one of our most proactive departments in social sciences, sociology, um, and see what they're doing, because they're always engaging in something interesting. 
So I'm going to self-promote here very strongly for a minute. Um, Cody and I are two of the uh, co-chairs, along actually with Rachel, who's one of the other co-chairs, and Joanna, who was our guest last episode, is another one of the co-chairs of the Social and Political Theory Student Association yeah. here at the Grad Center. You can find it at spitsa, S-P-T-S-A Um So we have a few events every semester that I think engage some of the issues that um, we talk about here on the podcast. So, you know, come to those first above all other things. Um, but also, you know, it's the the political theory subfield here at the Grad Center is starting a new workshop series, and it's not quite fully announced, um, but the I've seen a tentative schedule, and it's going to be amazing and very critical and diverse in terms of theories and philosophies that's engaging. Um, so check out the Political Science Department webpage, which is being newly redesigned and will launch in a couple of weeks. Um, so check out there. But really, I'd echo what B said um, as far as get on email lists of Absolutely. places that you think might um, have the kinds of events that you're looking for, whether it's organizations, whether it's institutions, whether it's departments within the building, whether it's centers, right? So get on the Center for Humanities uh, email list here at the Grad Center. Get on the Globalization and Social Change Committee list here at the Grad Center. Um, get out the various certificate programs. There's Women's Studies, American Studies, Home Studies. These all kind of Events, even elsewhere, the uh, social and cultural analysis that you always has people yes. and amazing guests. Um, you know, there's lots of lots of places you can go to, to other universities or whatever. whatever. Uh, but if you really want to, the grad students first. first. Um, you know, but there are one of the things that actually gets back to the previous question that's hard about living in New York is that there are literally like three or four talks you could go to every single day that you would really enjoy and get a lot out, get a lot out of. So it's a matter of you know finding whether it's a social group or whether it's a particular um, you know set of institutions that you tend to prefer going to, whether it's what's going to be most convenient for your schedule. Um, you know, so it's a matter of kind of it's one of the hard tasks is actually not finding things to go to in New York, it's how do I actually figure out what I'm able to and want to go to. And just one thing is that, um, I, I, to, just to mention, is that if your obligations, um, either family or otherwise, prevent you from going to many of these events, it should be noted that these events have, uh, in many instances, highlights online, videos online. So if you are subscribed to them, you have access to all the information otherwise. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, digital media somehow replaces, you know, the actual physical location of the body at these events. But I am saying that if you can't um, go, then you have access to, you know, other avenues. Absolutely. So I will uh, come from a different tack and maybe suggest sure. some non-academic ways about going to two that I yeah. really enjoy. So there's so one, admittedly, this one does cost money, but there's a place called um, the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, yeah, which yes. gives on classes by um, sort of PhD students and respected scholars from all the different universities around New York City, and they. Um, and, and it's classes in philosophy and critical theory and sociology and things like that that are, seem really interesting. Admittedly, I haven't, Hi, admittedly I haven't taken one, but they seem really great. They're really, really respected. I recommend it. And in the same line, look into specific spaces that do things or, or publications. So a favorite of mine is In Plus One magazine. Yeah. Often they will have an issue launch uh, where you go and listen to some of the readings at different bookstores. 
Um, there are bookstores too. Blue Stockings is really good. Yes, Blue Stockings is wonderful. Yeah. So get on the mailing list of these places. Yeah, uh, Jacobin Magazine Jacobin is Magazine. based in New York. They have stuff around the city sometimes. Absolutely. And isn't Blue Stockings worker owned? I mean, I believe, yeah. So I think it's one of those uh, few cooperatives, well, one of many, but one of those few cooperatives that I've been, uh, you know, accustomed to um, going. And it's just an amazing store, so. Yeah, that's kind of how I, I, I found out about most of the other things I get engaged with anyways. It's actually through publications, um, whether I'll buy an N plus one or listen to the, I don't want to actually listen to the podcast, but like, in, you know, an N plus one podcast or something yeah. like that. And they will talk about specific events, and then you meet people at events, and you learn new things. As they, as both John and B said before, there's so much stuff going on that it becomes a point of like, which do I go to today? Yeah. Um, and it seems daunting in the beginning, but then it... You'll, you'll get it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, still or seems daunting to it. me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> still very. Um, all right. So anything else about getting around? I mean, really, it's going to websites, getting on email lists, going to the kinds of spaces that put these sorts of events on. Um, and, you museums know. as well. Quite yeah. a few museums have great. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in uh, you know, art and philosophy or critical theory specifically engages sure. in that anyway. So a lot of museums mm -hmm. will have. Uh, exhibits with uh, artist talks or art um, author talks that are also really good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and come to Grad Center things more than anything else. No, really. I mean, it's one of the hubs in the city, I believe, that engages in you know critical discourse more than other universities. And I am not just speaking from a place of bias. Um, I am speaking from a place that yes, indeed, you know, these uh, in many departments and others, it's an inter uh, interdisciplinary feel that uh, is sometimes lacking. So. And if you come to these events, there's a good chance you might run into one of your always already uh, hosts there. So it's true. Marissa or anyone else, come Cody to the thing. Cody cannot wait to have a glass of wine with everyone who comes. Come on. Come, <laughs> come on. Come on. Hello come to all of us uh, <laughs> while you're there. Um, Cody, Sophia, thank you so much for joining thank us today. You. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Sophia. She, she said so. She yeah. said thank you. That was thank you. The only time she was silent. And, uh, <laughs> come back next time. So next week we'll have the uh, B-sides to the uh, discussion of Genevieve Floyd's The Man of Reason. And in those B-sides, you're going to hear the rest of our conversation, including a very long, heated, amazing argument about Descartes. Uh, <laughs> the week after that, we are going to most likely be talking about some of Foucault's lectures on neoliberalism. Um, but stay tuned to our website and so on and so forth uh, for those things. So until then, B, Cody, thank you. Signing off. Thanks, Cody. Thanks, Sophia. Yeah. Bye. joining us for this episode of the Always Already podcast, which is a creation of Rachel Brown, B. Altman, and John McMahon. Sorry for the weird audio quality and noises at some times during this episode. We will try to work on that for the next one. Feel free to always visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. You should email us, texts you'd like us to discuss, or advice questions, or whatever you like, at alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. You should subscribe to us, some RSS feed or iTunes, whatever you like. And come back uh, next week for the B-sides to this episode, the rest of our conversation about Lloyd, and the week after that for the next major episode, episode 7, which will most likely be about Foucault and neoliberalism. Till then, thanks.
All right, Bruce, what do we think? It was pretty good. Yeah. I don't know what that question means. <laughs> <laughs>